Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Um, we're going to try something slightly different today. I guess we've done this a little bit lately, but um, going forward, we're going to try to have a, a pattern where once a week, Hugo talks to me about various issues of the day, just based on the feedback we've gotten from so many of you. That seems to be what our listeners want. And then once a week, I will interview um, a guest. If you have thoughts about that, just please reach out and let us know. Um, and also, I always forget to do this, but please rate and review us if you get a chance. Um, so, Hugo, how's it going? It's going pretty well. We're recording this on Monday morning. This will come out Tuesday morning, just to timestamp it so people are aware in case the world blows up in the interim. Um, we were still here on Monday morning, May 7th. The world blows up. We'll do an emergency podcast about <laughs> Good. it. Excellent. Well, assuming the power is I think some people are working towards blowing up the world, but then maybe they always are. So let's start. We're going to talk some about Republicans, uh, just because this is a, a, a an interesting development from last week. Liz Cheney lost her job as the third ranking uh, leader in the House. Republicans. Is there anything about those the way this went down that surprises you or illuminates something kind of important? Well, just I'll, I'll, here's the th- here's the story it tells to a certain extent, which is I think that they are really setting themselves up for failure in the sense that I don't care if Elise Stefanik or Liz Cheney or someone else is the number three House Republican who gives a shit, right? But like, there was a Republican uh, from New York that when Cuomo started having his troubles called me and said, hey, do you think I could run for governor or win? And I said, probably not. And he said, why? And I said, because to win the primary, you need to be pro-Trump and pro-life. And then the minute you, if you win the primary into the general election, you're dead. Wait, wait, this was a Republican. Uh, uh, this was a Republican okay. asking me that. Right. And and he didn't run, but he's not running. But um, but look, you always have people who just want it badly enough to run no matter what. But ultimately, if you have to move yourself so far to the crazy side to be um, to be acceptable, it just it's the same reason why Bernie Sanders would have lost this election to Trump, most likely, um, or Elizabeth Warren. It's just Americans don't really love ideologues, we elect them because we don't turn out to vote in primaries, as I've discussed in this podcast a million times, but uh, people do vote in the presidential. So I I think they're hurting themselves both for the midterms in 22, for gubernatorial races, and for the presidential 24, although the Biden re-election will be a referendum on Biden, or if he doesn't run on the Biden-Harris administration. Um, And if they do well, they will get another four years, just like most presidents do. Um, and if they don't, then they'll lose the whoever. What, what, just focusing in on Cheney for a second, I realize that the you know the the fate of the third uh, leading House Republican is not of of greatest interest to you. But what do you think? It's a cautionary tale for others. Are they are they making an example of her just to sort of like like uh, stiffen up support in the troops? Like what's the? No, I mean they're making an example of her because they don't have a choice. Trump is still wielding a tremendous amount of power. He demanded it. They're afraid of Trump. Uh, and therefore they did what he wanted. Um, it's, it's as simple as that, but you have this kind of lunatic sitting down in Mar-a-Lago now calling the shots. Um, he couldn't even get himself reelected. I don't really know how he uh, helped. He, this is the best thing the Democrats have going for them, right? Because uh, they're going to pass a lot of bills, some of which are right, some of which may not be, but uh, are straight party lines. It's going to be controversial. And the best chance they have to retain the majorities in 2022, although I think it's going to be hard no matter what, um, is if the Republicans are an even bigger mess. And, you know, this is uh, clear evidence that they are. If you were a betting man, and I know that sometimes you are, um, who's the 2024 GOP nominee if it's not Trump? 
I don't know. I mean, the easy answer right now is DeSantis because he's kind of inherited the Trump mantle and he seems a little less schmuckish than Holly, although maybe that's a, it's a close call. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it, I guess the question maybe I'm more interested in is, is, does, is there a Republican third party candidate this time, right? So John Kasich kind of toyed with it in both 16 and 20, but didn't have the balls to do it. Um, is there someone, whether it's uh, a, a Romney or maybe even someone more moderate uh, on social issues, who just says, like, I think that if we split the left and the right, there's a lot of room to run up the center and I can win or um, or whatever it is. So, you know, probably not, because having looked at this for Mike Bloomberg in 2016, you know, you have to then ultimately win in the House of Representatives, and that's unbelievably hard. So there's a lot of reasons not to. But eventually, just to take a step back, I think we're heading towards maybe actually a, a good outcome, although it's going to be very messy till we get there, which is, in reality, we have three distinct partisan ideologies in this country combined into two political parties, right? You have people who genuinely believe in socialism. You have people who genuinely are libertarians. And then you have everyone else who's in the middle, and they may disagree on a policy issue here and there, or they may have degrees of, of differences as to how much a tax rate should be but not whether or not there should be a tax rate, right? If you take taxes, a true socialist would say it should be 100% and the government will provide all. Um, a true libertarian would say it should be zero and we'll all fend for ourselves just and that'll be better. And then everyone else is somewhere between zero and 100 and we'll, we'll figure it out, right? If you ultimately had three parties, kind of socialists, libertarians, and call them balancers, um, I think that would actually encapsulate most Republicans, most Democrats, and most Americans. And then all of a sudden, once you shed yourself of the extremes on both sides, uh, your incentive becomes getting things done. Um, and so I, I don't think we're around the corner on that. But if you look at where both parties are headed in terms of their own civil war, look how the Democrats just absolutely eviscerate their own at every turn if someone's not sufficiently pure enough for them. Um, that's what's going to happen. Right. So Peter Thiel, uh, there's a good story in, in Politico today about Peter Thiel spending $10 million uh, to support two senatorial candidates, J.D. Vance in Ohio and Blake Masters in Arizona. These are not just candidates he likes these are like his guys um and he took vance it says in the story to meet trump at mar-a-lago um which was something of a big deal because vance had been critical of trump in the past um i gather the meeting went well so controlling two senate seats is uh, pretty massive in this environment um this seems like a pretty major play on the part of peter Thiel. what, what do you make of it well it's the same thing we just talked about which is why why shouldn't he right i mean you get into a point now where things are decentralized enough that in effect, what he's really creating is the Teal Party, right? Where he'll have two members initially, two, two U.S. senators, if they win those races, and they're not easy to win, but if, if they did. Um, and then if he's successful, people will flock to it because, you know, people want whatever helps them win an election. And so, yeah, if, if I had that kind of money, like, I would do the same thing. Now, I don't agree with Teal's politics. I certainly don't agree with his support for Trump. But in terms of someone saying, I care enough to use my resources to try to elect people who I think have the right ideas. Um, good for him. You know, there's, there's no reason that he shouldn't do that or that anyone who has the means to do it shouldn't do something like that. And look, this is what Mike Bloomberg learned when he became mayor and why he ran for mayor and then ultimately for president was as much money as you have, there's only so much you can accomplish, accomplish philanthropically, right? Think, think about the infrastructure bill and the Biden American families plan. It's a total of $5 trillion in spending. If Jeff Bezos gave away every dollar he had, it's 200 million, right? Which is like a, a fraction. What's what's 200 million? Wait, did you say million? I think you meant billion. 200 billion, right? Yeah, 
So that's it's it's like one half. It's less forty point four percent is what it would be. So you can't really make a dent in society's problems through philanthropy alone. Uh, but if you can really impact government policy and spending, you can in either direction, right? And like again, do I agree with TL on most stuff? No. Will I agree with Vance and Masters on most stuff? Probably not. I'll probably even support their opponents. Um, but uh, it's exactly what I would do if I had that kind of money. And if at some point I do have that kind of money, it's what I'm going to do. What is the sort of position of the tech industry vis-a-vis Teal at this point? I mean, he's he's obviously part of it, but he's also, you know, like got his pretty serious positions. He's, he's a big critic of Google. Yeah. Uh, he, he's a, yeah. a big critic of, of, of sort of global outsourcing, which is obviously a major yeah. issue for Apple. Um I, I would think the tech industry is pretty wary of him, no? Well, I think he's his own deal, right? Like, Teal's his own deal. I guess that rhymes. Um, he uh, is a very good investor. Founders Fund does really well, and they're in lots of companies. And one of the reasons that he's a good investor is they're not afraid to take risks. They will bet on things that are controversial. In some ways, maybe we're almost copying his strategy in the sense that while Touch Ventures focuses on regulatory, we're delving into things that are controversial, that other investors may be shy away from, and then we embrace them. And when we succeed, we really succeed with it. So look, he, he's a very good investor, regardless uh, of his politics. His book that he wrote with Blake Masters was also very good, Zero to One. Uh, so he does a lot of things right. And you know, it, it, the tech industry is a good place for iconoclasts, right? Look at Shamath Palapathia, um, who is now the king of SPACs and talked about running for governor of California, uh, was one of the lead people at Facebook, had an incredibly successful venture capital fund. Uh, th- there are a lot of big personalities like that. Now, I'm not part of the sort of Sand Hill Road crowd, so I don't know what's said about Peter Thiel at breakfast on Thursdays at the Rosewood. But in terms of me as a venture capitalist, I think he's pretty impressive. Which book did you like better, Hillbilly Elegy or Zero to One? It's a great question. Ultimately, Zero to One, I thought it was more substantive. Um, Hillbilly Elegy is a much better story. Um but I think I learned a lot more from Zero to One. Interesting that they both, like both these candidates, emerged as public figures by writing books. Um, feels like a little small ball compared to like reality television. But uh, <laughs> I guess we'll see if it works out. Well, but in, in theory, assuming they wrote them themselves, they're at least literate, which is a step up on most cop politicians. Okay, so I read in the Financial Times over the weekend this kind of stunning stat that I guess is drawn actually from the Forbes 400. It said the total wealth of billionaires worldwide rose from eight trillion to thirteen trillion in twelve months, the most dramatic surge ever registered. When you consider that the worldwide government stimulus was nine trillion, uh, I guess that computes to half of it, a little more than half of it, going into the pockets of the richest people on earth. How, how can there not be political consequences for that? Well, I think there are, and that that's why, as we've discussed, I support the Biden tax plan and why I think a version of it is going to pass. Right. You have a society that is just marked by too much inequality. And when you look at the relative benefit of, say, for me, an extra X amount of money compared to what it could mean for, for other people, um, it's really hard to argue that all of the money should be saved and kept in the hands uh, of people who already have a lot of it. Now, am I skeptical of the government's ability to redistribute that wealth in an efficient way? Absolutely. I think they will waste and steal a ton of it along the way. Um, do I think it'd be better off being redistributed through universal basic income? I do, and that's obviously why I'm uh, helping run Andrew Yang's campaign for mayor of New York City. Um, but overall, yeah, I mean, this is this just doesn't make sense. I mean, how much money do you need? And ultimately, you know, even like once you're worth billions of dollars, unless you do like what Teal is doing, you're giving it away anyway, right? 
And so the question is, is it more effective to do it um, through taxes or through private philanthropy? And while private philanthropy in any individual case could be more efficient, more effective than a government agency, overall, as we discussed earlier, if you want to redistribute what comes out to trillion, be trillions of dollars, um, it's only going to happen through the collective action function of government. I'm thinking, though, that of a political reaction, it's a little more serious than a tax hike. I mean, which is, you know, I guess a big deal. But, you know, some commentators pointed to the financial bailout of 2008, 2009 as sort of lighting a match under populist outrage. You know, so on the left, you got Sanders and the right. Well, we have that already. Right. Yeah, but we've, we've had that since the financial crisis. Right. That's what pe- pe- mainstream Democrats, Democrats couldn't understand why Sanders was so popular in 2016. This is why. It's why he was also one of the leading candidates in 2020. It's why Donald Trump got elected. It's why Ron DeSantis or Josh Hawley are acting like such lunatics, because that's what they're trying to appeal to. We're already at that point, right? Our politics have been taken over by extremes on both sides because of anger uh, around the status quo. Um, And until everyone starts showing up to vote in every election, it's not going to be taken back. Speaking of anger, uh, obviously, the big news this week was the situation in Israel with Hamas. Um, It's it's uh, you know, I guess we we can't really get into the situation as it relates specifically to Israeli politics. But maybe it's better for us to talk about how it relates to sort of American politics. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, so let me first start. because I've been thinking about this a lot, which is my perspective on this is biased. It's admittedly biased, but I also think it's fairly biased, which is my grandparents survived the Holocaust. Fairly biased is, is an interesting um, turn of phrase, but go ahead. Sorry. My grandparents survived the Holocaust. My father was born in Russia during World War II. They lived in refugee camps for five years until they came to this country. Um, and if you look at the history of the Jews in every single country around the world, it always goes bad. There's always some form of Nazis or an inquisition or something like that. And I do not believe that the Jewish people can ever be truly safe without having our own homeland. And that homeland has to be heavily, heavily armed and secure. So um, the notion to me of, hey, can't we have one tiny piece of land in the world um, so that we can be safe and not persecuted seems very reasonable. Now, I understand where the Palestinians are coming from because they also say, this is our homeland too. We shouldn't be persecuted either. Um, I think that's right. That's why most people agree with the two-state solution. Um, at this point. But but fundamentally, if you're listening to this and you're trying to understand why what seem like reasonable people in the U.S. are so stridently pro-Israel and so Zionist, it, it's because of that. Like, I don't live on the assumption that my family will live in the U.S. Uh, for generations to come. Um, it is very reassuring for me to know that me and my kids uh, have the ability to become Israeli citizens uh, at any time simply because of our religion. I assume that at some point in the United States, especially if the Trumpism uh, or, by the way, the far left is really expedited, um, that's going to be necessary. And so um, to me, fundamentally, I, I don't have the solutions to the problems in Israel by any means. Um, but but I really do want people to understand that when people who are pro-Israel are espousing this view, um, it, it, it's coming from a place of thousands and thousands of years uh, of very good evidence. But where does that leave sort of American political leaders? Um, uh, obviously, you're, you're speaking on behalf of, of, of Jewish people and their... And their... And to be clear, just for any local political reporters listening to this and looking to start trouble, speaking on behalf of myself, not on behalf of them. Right, right. And, and the, the, 
But what's the what's the role of you know you have the Republicans are 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 sort of supporting Israel almost without question. The the Democrats are more of a mixed bag, a fair amount of condemnation from the left, uh, sort of cautious support in the middle. Um, what's at stake here, just domestically, um, in in this position? Nothing. Nothing. No, I just, I just don't think U.S. elections are determined on Israel one way or the other. So you know what will it mean? It will mean that. Some candidates who support Israel will raise even more money. It means that in districts that are left wing and where a moderate, say, Democratic member is now vulnerable to someone on the left, they'll be that much more vulnerable because there'll be more energy uh, on the anti-Israel side of the ledger. Um, but fundamentally, nothing, really. It, 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 the impact is purely what happens over there. And again, to be clear, what's happening there is terrible. It's awful. Um, and we should all feel equally compassionate towards the Palestinians that are losing their lives right now and their homes um, and Israelis, regardless of whose fault it is or who started it. Um, but I don't believe there's any real impact on U.S. politics either way. And what about corporate leaders? Is there is there a uh, is there going to be a, a, a necessity for, for companies to sort of take positions or, or make statements? Or, or... It depends who your customer base is, right? If your customer base is really far right or far left, then yeah, you, you probably you probably might want to take a position accordingly. Um, but if it's not, I don't really see why you would choose to get involved. Um, another big story from last week or the last few weeks, I guess, is worries about U.S. job growth. Uh, there seems to be a pretty significant uh, difference of opinion about whether unemployment support is encouraging people not to work and therefore impeding kind of job growth. What, what's your view of it? Do you have an opinion? Do you? Yeah, I, I do. It's kind of mixed in that. So I was talking to a kind of basically a modern day, you know, temp agency, but specifically for the restaurant and bar space the other day, we were looking at them as an investment on the venture side. And um, this is all they do is every day place people on last minute shifts at bars and restaurants. And I said, given that, you know, so many places closed during the pandemic and haven't reopened, um, are you overloaded with demand from people who want to work um, or some of what's being said around the inability to attract people to, to come to work? True. And they said it's 100 percent true. Uh, They're having real trouble uh, getting people to come. So on one hand, that sounds like bad policy. On the other hand, the stuff all runs out in September. So we're a few months away. And if you have to err on the side of helping people too much or too little, I'd always rather help them too much. So yeah, it's a it's a short-term problem. I think it'll be fixed. The next time there's some giant stimulus bill, you can think through what the lessons were uh, of the labor economy uh, post post and pre or, and during COVID. Um, but overall, you know, it, the problem should go in a few months either way. So. Um- you mentioned we were talking a little earlier about some of the investments you make. Uh, one thing you generally shy away from, I think this is true, is is media. Um, I'm curious why that is, and what what would have to change, or what would you have to see to to be interested in a in a media company? It's just not a good business, right? So, like, what, you're dependent either on paid advertising, which is a very tough way to make a living, um, or subscriptions, which if it works, can be very profitable. If, if either model works, it can work really well. Fox News is unbelievably profitable um, because uh, of advertising revenue. But overall, the vast, vast, vast majority of media outlets don't make the money that they would like to on either subscriptions or ad revenue, and they struggle. Now, people have them for different reasons. Some people own media outlets because it makes them influential. Jeff Bezos in the Washington Post. 
Um, sometimes it, it's part of a larger package of offerings if you're the networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, where it may not be super profitable for you, but, you know, it's, it's, it's part of what you do overall. Um, and, you know, they do a lot less of it than they used to. Um, so, you know, there are different reasons for people to own and invest in media entities. But if the goal is I want to maximize returns for my investors, you know, that's not really one of them. It's interesting to see. I had this as an earlier question, which we, we passed over. But um, uh, it looks like Tucker Carlson is actually becoming a, a I mean, they're talking about him as a political figure now. Um, it's interesting. Sure. Why, why wouldn't he be? Well, I mean, no one talks about Rachel Maddow being one. Oh, I'm sure that if uh, I'm sure that if she wanted to run for office in certain jurisdictions, she could be really successful. You know, th- I mean, just attracting celebrity and having name ID is, is so unbelievably powerful that you know you can run a bad race and lose it. But if you put Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow in most elections, now if you said, okay, Rachel Maddow's going to primary Chuck Schumer from the left, tough race, right? <laughs> but put her up against Gillibrand, I mean, she beats her. So um, I, I would. Uh, I would bet on them in, in most cases. You bet on both Tucker and and uh... yeah. And by the way, I, I just I can't stand either of them. I think they're both incredibly harmful to democracy. Um, but that doesn't harmful to democracy. What do you mean? They promote the extremes at the expense of getting anything done. Right? You know, they basically take the position of the furthest left on the fifteen percent of the left or the right and say, "So take guns." Right? Tucker Carlson would say, you should be able to get a gun anytime you want, anywhere you want, no questions asked. Rachel Maddow would say, no one should ever have a gun and we should confiscate all of the guns in people's homes. 70% of the American population doesn't agree with either of those positions. So what should be our laws are we're not going to confiscate guns people who have them, but we're also not going to sell assault weapons to anyone else either. Um, but simply because uh, we you know, have a political system where uh, only People on the far left and far right tend to vote in primaries, turn, turn out in congressional and most primaries between 10 and 15 percent. Those are the people who love Rachel Maddow on one side or love Tucker Carlson on the other. So all of the incentives to every politician, if you want to get reelected, is to stick with that position, which means nothing gets done. So I think they're two of the greatest threats to democracy that we have. But at the same time, I think both of them would be very successful political candidates. Do you ever watch them just to enjoy hating on them or just nope. aggravate? No, nope. I don't. I don't watch that. Look, I. I do a lot of things with my time, but but watching TV news is not one of them. I would say I watch TV news a couple of times a year for either a debate or election results, and, and that's it. Interesting. Um, if a billionaire came to you and said, uh, which media company should I buy, price no object, what would you advise? And their goal is to have influence or to make money? Influence. I have money. <laughs> the, the, the Times, right, would be the, the place to start. So I, I think it's a very good idea for billionaires to buy media companies for influence, right? Um, take Jeff Bezos. He, he, he gets bad press, but not nearly as bad as he could. Um, and the reason why is even though he should be the single most vulnerable person to criticism from the left, some of it is muted. And this was easier for him during Trump than it is now. But when Trump was in office, he owned the newspaper that Trump considered to be, other than the Times, the, his biggest critic. Uh, and did the best work in investigating the Trump administration. And as a result, kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And Bezos avoided lots and lots of criticism from the left simply because he owns the Washington Post. So for, what do you pay, $200 million for it? Which is like just, you know, the tiniest of fractions of it's one-tenth of 1% of his net worth or something like that. Um, it was a great buy, right? So if you are a really, really rich person um, and buying a media outlet is a very small percentage 
uh, of your overall uh, income and wealth, um, you, you should do it because all of a sudden you have the power of the printing press, right? Or the ability to post stuff online. Um, and that gets a lot of people online. It gets a lot of politicians to do what you want and listen to you and everything else. So look, if, like I said, just like I will, I'll spend a lot of my money if I you know, reach that point, uh, picking candidates like Peter Thiel is, I'll probably also buy a media outlet for the same reasons. But the Washington Post is obviously a particularly, I mean, he was, he was super smart to get that one, both for the price versus the uh, sort of potential power inherent in it. There's not, you know, there's not too many Washington Post. Yeah, uh, I agree. Well, there's a reason why he's smarter than everyone else. Right. Or, or there's a reason why he wins so much. He's smarter than most people. Um, so that was the right move. Um, but, you know, I bet Mark Benioff is happy that he owns Time magazine. Um, and I'm, I know Rupert Murdoch is happy that he owns the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal. And the New York Post is, a, is not something he does for financial gain. It's, it's for influence. I think he actually does it so that you and Lyle have something to do in the morning. It's true. We do read it seven days. And uh, so I, I think that, yeah, the Washington Post might have been a unique opportunity. Um, but all this stuff, uh, especially non-digital publications, right? Because the, the valuations of the BuzzFeeds and Vices of the world are, are way out of control. They've, they've been trimmed back some, but but still in, in nowhere near what they should be. Um, but like a traditional media outlet, uh, I think it makes total sense to buy it. So let's talk about masks. Do you understand what's going on with masks? Do you understand what the White House did sort of saying this thing? Like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> No, I, I don't really. I'm confused by it. So I thought that it was if you've had two vaccinations and you're two weeks past the second one, you only wear a mask indoors when you're in close contact with a lot of strangers, right? Um, and if you're around other people who are vaccinated or you're outside, you don't need it at all. That was my understanding. Um, it seems to have been muddled up a lot over the last few days, and I can't tell what it is. What do you think it is? I, I, I mean, I... I don't know what it is. I, I, I feel fine not wearing a mask outdoors unless I'm like in a, you know, in a large sort of group of people or something like out in, in Union Square Park or something. Like I feel comfortable that way and I have for a while. Um, but any any inside space where you're around people you don't know, um, I, I still wear a mask and I don't know when exactly that will change. Um, I still feel pretty weird eating indoors. Um, you know, what about have you been eating indoors much? No, no, we went out for, for dinner this weekend. We took, uh, so Abigail had one of her first nights out where she's on the debate team and the captain of the debate team, who was a senior, invited some of the girls from the debate team, I think all the girls from the debate team, to have dinner in Williamsburg and sleep over. Um, and so it was the first night where, like, I was tracking her on my phone and watching her walk around Williamsburg and calling her and, you know, not, I didn't go to bed until she, you know, texted me that she was at their home and my phone confirmed that she was. <laughs> um, and Lyle and Harper and I went out for dinner. We went to the Dutch, which by the way, if you're looking for a good meal, was just, I'm sure everything tastes better to me right now because I'm so excited to just be out. Uh, but, and we ate outside, but, but Harper and I discussed it. Lyle's had one shot, not two. Would we eat indoors if that's where they put us? And our conclusion was yes. So yeah, I'm willing to eat indoors at this point. And by the way, I did eat indoor, indoors with our friends Charlie and Kim at a restaurant called the Thai Diner two weeks ago, and it was amazing. Now, again, maybe this is all the product of me just having not been out for a long time, but uh, I really enjoyed it. All right, I'm going to ask one final question. I want you to think about this one carefully because it's a sports question, but you have to answer it so that it's interesting to non-sports fans, all right? Like this is an important thing. So don't don't geek out on on 
you know, a particular player or anything like that. But what, if you were going to explain to a non-sports fan why the Knicks had a successful season for the first time in almost a decade, what would you point to? How would you explain it? So I, I would say a few things. And I think it actually doesn't require looking at like player efficiency ratings and stuff like that. I, I think it's pretty simple. One, better management, right? Jim Dolan has had a really, really rough time running the Knicks, but he hired Leon Rose and a good team and he has let them do their jobs and they have made significant improvements. So the, first of all, I, I think since he gets the blame for everything all the time, um, he should get some credit. So better management from the owner, from the general manager and that whole group. Second is better coaching. When they hired Tom Thibodeau, they hired someone who really, really is passionate about the game, uh, fights for every play, every point, every possession, uh, and coaches his players along those lines. And he is always successful, especially when he first starts out with a team. Eventually, because he runs them so hard, it, it kind of wears thin after a couple of years, and he typically flames out after that. Um, but in his first couple of years, he's unbelievably successful. And look, shocker, if you play defense, you do better, right? <laughs> um, so that alone, in other words, they're trying harder, thanks to their coach. The third is, you know, they have a player who always had a lot of talent, but had never really put it together in Julius Randle. And he did, right? And I don't know if it's because in the long nine-month layover that he had during COVID, he just got in much better shape. It's because he changed his mindset. Uh, whatever it is, but he's turned into one of the top 10 players in the NBA. He's, a, he's an MVP candidate. He won't win. I think he'll be on most all-NBA second-team ballots. Um, and so you got better play out of him. And then, you know, a couple of things worked out. They, they drafted Quigley. That that worked out really well. Um, and, uh, you know, a few other guys have stepped up. They made a smart move in reacquiring Derrick Rose. But it was a, essentially like any success story in any business. Good management, decision-making, hard work, and bringing in more talent. If you can do that in any business, you will do well. And that's why the Knicks have succeeded this year. All right. Well done. Um, just to let uh, listeners know, we're doing two other podcast recordings this week that'll be coming up. We have uh, Zachary Carabell, author, and uh, Ian Leslie as well. Um, those will be out in the next week or two. Um, otherwise, thanks, Bradley. This was good. Cool. Thank you. Though.